Catholic History Trek, a podcast exploring the Catholic past. If you follow American College football today, you may realize the schools like Alabama, Clemson, and The Ohio State are the standard bearers of successful programs in the 21st century. These three teams have combined for 10 national titles in the past 20 seasons and have won the the championship in nine of the past 11 seasons. But if you go back in time, you will find other schools have come and gone as relevant competitors to the national title, no different than empires that have risen and fallen through the ages. In the 1990s, Nebraska and Florida State were alternating national titles, and fellow Florida school, Miami, was dominating the 1980s. But if you go back even farther, you will find a university founded by the Congregation of the Holy Cross, was the one who dominated the college football landscape. That school is the University of Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana. The Fighting Irish, as they are called, captured four national titles in the 1940s, with four more spread out from the 1960s through the 1980s. Anyone who is familiar with the school or their football program has likely heard of Touchdown Jesus. That is the 134-foot tall mural officially titled Word of Life, which adorns the side of Notre Dame's Hesburgh Library, which faces the football stadium. Another statue, which may be familiar to the more devoted fans of Notre Dame, is the statue of Moses on the west side of the Hesburgh Library, which features Moses pointing his index finger upward. This statue is often called First Down Moses, in another football-themed moniker. But the topic of this episode of Catholic History Trek is the man portrayed in a third and less well-known image, perhaps only known to the most diehard of fighting Irish fans. The statue of which I speak is Fair Catch Corby. If you're unfamiliar with American football, when a team fails to achieve a first down, they often punt the ball away to the opposing team. If the player on the team receives the punted or kicked ball, if he raises his hand in the air, this indicates a fair catch. This signals the opposing team to not tackle him after he receives the kick, because he's not going to advance the ball. The statue, located in front of the aptly named Corby Hall, depicts a priest, Father Corby, raising his hand in absolution. This pose bears a resemblance to the fair catch signal, and so he has been informally named Fair Catch Corby by a student body obsessed with Notre Dame football. So, who is Father Corby, and why is he memorialized in bronze, offering absolution? In this episode of Catholic History Trek, Kevin Schmeising and I will unveil the man behind the statue, beginning our trek in 19th century Ireland. In 1845, about one half of the Irish potato crop was ruined by an organism called Phytophthora infestans. Over the next seven years, up to three quarters of the potato harvest was annually destroyed by this blight, which has become known as the Great Hunger or the infamous Irish Potato Famine. The effects of this famine led to the deaths of one million Irish, which was about one-eighth of Ireland's population at the time, and it compelled another one million to become refugees, immigrating to other lands. Many of these Irish immigrated to the United States, with the peak of the immigration occurring during the late 1840s through the early 1850s, climbing as high as 200,000 immigrants per year. And while some mistakenly romanticize immigration to America in the 19th century as an open, warm embrace, 
inspired by the famous line from the Emma Lazarus poem, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses. The reality was far different. When these mostly Catholic Irish immigrants reached the shores of mostly Protestant America, they were met with anything but open arms. Kevin and I will cover the history of anti-Catholicism in America in a future episode of Catholic History Trek, but just to give a small sampling of what these Irish faced when they came ashore, here are a few examples. It wasn't uncommon for them to find employment signs posted which stated, Help wanted. No Irish need apply. Future President Theodore Roosevelt, when he served in the New York State Assembly in the early 1880s, wrote in his diary, But the average Catholic Irishman of first generation as represented in this assembly is a low, venal, corrupt, and unintelligent brute. And if you're familiar with the term paddy wagon, in reference to the police vehicle designed to haul away groups of people, this term survives to the present as an anti-Irish Catholic insult. Paddy was a common name for Irishmen, derived from the name Patrick, who was the Catholic saint famed for evangelizing Ireland. And the paddy wagon was Protestant America's way of degrading the Irish immigrants, or paddies, as nothing more than criminals and thugs who are only good for hauling off to jail. A decade after many of these Irish immigrants arrived in America, the country erupted into civil war. Thousands of Irish immigrants enlisted. And while there are different reasons why they joined the army, a common one was seeking to show they embraced their new country and freed themselves of the anti-Catholic, anti-Irish persecution they had faced since arriving in America. Irish immigrants actually fought for both sides, for the Confederacy and the Union, depending on where they landed and settled, but they mostly fought for the Union side, which is where most of them made their new home. One of these Irish immigrants who fought for the Union Army was Thomas Francis Maher, described by Father Corby as boldly Irish and boldly Catholic, who was not a pious man, but loved his faith. Maher had been involved in the failed Young Ireland Revolution of 1848, which sought to form an independent Irish Republic free of British rule. The British government exiled him to Tasmania for his involvement in the movement. But he escaped to America in 1852 and joined the army. As an interesting side note, Maher survived the Civil War and became governor of the Montana Territory, only to die shortly afterwards in 1867, drowning in the Missouri River after falling from a steamboat. When Civil War began in April of 1861, the 69th New York Militia, which consisted of mostly Irish Catholics, was sent to Washington. Maher served in this regiment as the captain of the 69th Zouave Company. And just to briefly describe what a Zouave is, they were light infantry soldiers who wore European Zouave-inspired uniforms and whose fighting tactics were not the slow, tight formations typically associated with the Civil War, but were more geared to essentially not being easy targets for enemy bullets. In July of 1861, the 69th saw fighting in the First Battle of Bull Run, also called First Manassas, which is generally considered the first major battle of the American Civil War. Under the leadership of Stonewall Jackson, who gained his nickname in this battle, the Confederates stood their ground and repelled Union charges. The Confederates launched a counterattack and claimed a victory, forcing the Union Army into retreat. The 69th New York performed rearguard duty for the withdrawing Union Army as it fled towards Washington. In the First Battle of Bull Run, the 69th's commander, 
Colonel Michael Kokorin had been taken prisoner. This resulted in the promotion of Maher to Colonel of the 69th New York. Although shortly after they returned to Washington, the 90-day enrollment of the men of the 69th expired, and the men were mustered out of the regiment. Maher envisioned creating an Irish regiment, and many of the men of the 69th New York militia re-enlisted in what became the 69th New York Volunteers. Although Maher's proposal was not just for one Irish res- regiment, but for an entire Irish brigade, the Irish brigade was formed under Maher's command consisting of the 63rd New York, the 69th New York, and the 88th New York. Subsequently, two more Irish regiments were added, which were the 28th Massachusetts and the 116th Pennsylvania. The Irish Brigade was usually fighting from a disadvantage, though, as they were only equipped with smoothbore muskets at a time when muskets were being replaced by rifles, which were more accurate and could fire at longer distances. And they were usually placed in the midst of the deadliest fighting. Civil War correspondent George Alfred Townsend noted, When anything absurd, forlorn, or desperate was to be attempted, the Irish Brigade was called upon. Despite these disadvantages, they gained a reputation for their ferocity in battle, as well as gallantry and discipline, but they also gained a reputation for high casualty rates. Fighting in the Army of the Potomac's major battles, in the Battle of Antietam, the brigade lost 60% of her 3,000 members. In the Battle of Fredericksburg, just under one-half of the remaining 1,200 brigade members were killed, and in the Battle of Gettysburg, 60% of the 530 members were killed. But the Irish Brigade is just one small piece of Catholics in the Civil War. And thankfully, we have Kevin to share from his abundant wellspring of knowledge on the topic. Well, Scott, as you rightly indicated, by and large, Catholic opinion or Catholic allegiance during the Civil War reflected regional differences. So Southern Catholics supported and fought for the Confederacy. Northern Catholics supported and fought for the Union. Now, this is a simplification, and sometimes it was more complicated than that, sometimes a little more contested, as the New York draft riots demonstrate. That was an episode that was depicted in Martin Scorsese's Gang, Gangs of New York, his 2002 movie. So there were important Catholic Union generals. They included Philip Sheridan and the convert, William Rosecrans, and they were important Southern officers as well. For example, Raphael Semmes and P.G.T. Beauregard. Chaplain and nursing corps followed the same pattern. I mentioned in my health care podcast that sisters served with distinction during the Civil War as the Nuns of the Battlefield Memorial in Washington, D.C. commemorates. Some 700 sisters from 20 congregations, probably between 15 and 20 percent of all Civil War nurses, served during the war. The Catholic chaplain numbers were somewhat lower. There were about 50 priests who served in the Union Armed Forces and 30 in the Confederacy. And so this made up a small percentage of the overall total, which was about 3,700 chaplains overall during the Civil War. But the Catholic priests were distinguished by their dedication and their sacrifice, as attested by officers on both sides such as General Joseph Hooker for the Union and General Benjamin Butler for the Confederate States of America, both of whom uh, testified to the particular dedication of Catholic priests in their memories after the war. One great source for the experiences of Catholic chaplains during the war 
comes from David Cunningham. He was an Ireland-born journalist who served in the Irish Brigade, the unit that Scott was talking about, and wrote extensively about his experience. He also wrote an unfinished manuscript titled Soldiers of the Cross, which was about the heroism of Catholic chaplains and sisters in the American Civil War. It consists of profiles of 12 Union and three Confederate chaplains, as well as six groups of Catholic sisters who served as nurses. And that manuscript lay in the archives of the University of Notre Dame for nearly 150 years until it was finally published just a couple of years ago in 2019 by Notre Dame Press under the editorship of Father David Endress and William Kurtz. Its cover features the painting Absolution Under Fire, which we'll come back to a little bit later. Among the chaplains highlighted by Cunningham in this book is... Finally, with all of the context set, the main subject of this podcast, Father William Corby. Born in 1833, William Corby was the eldest son of Daniel Corby, an Irish immigrant from County Offaly, and who first settled in Montreal, where he met and married his wife before eventually moving his family to Detroit, Michigan. William Corby worked in his father's successful real estate business, But eventually, William and his two younger brothers were sent to Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana, which had recently been founded in 1842. Somewhere between growing up in a family who used its fortune to help establish Detroit parishes and his studies at Notre Dame, William felt a calling to the priesthood and was ordained in 1859. After ordination, Father Corby served as a parish priest and teacher at Notre Dame University. At the outbreak of the Civil War in 1861, the founder of Notre Dame, Reverend Edward Sorn, encouraged his students to enlist in the newly formed Irish Brigade. Sorn also urged William to enlist and minister to the pastoral needs of the men under arms. Father William Corby accepted the challenge of serving the Catholic soldiers as a military chaplain. He later described his feelings while riding on the train on the Pittsburgh-Fort Wayne and Chicago Railroad from Chicago to New York to meet the soldiers for the first time. As he said, It was much like getting married. We made the engagement for better or worse, for richer or poor, till death do us part. Father Corby was assigned as chaplain to the 88th New York, joining Father Dillon and Father Ouellette, who were assigned to other regiments in the Irish Brigade, while some chaplains came and went, leaving their chaplaincy either due to being too old to endure camp life on the move or because they were called back by their bishop or religious superiors, Corby served the duration from the time he joined to the end of the Civil War. One thing that Father Corby described during his time that I'd be remiss if I didn't share was his portrayal of something called a military mass. He describes it as celebrated in the ordinary solemn form, according to the rubrics, except the surroundings were different. The mass was held in a church tent with a great avenue leading to the tent lined with flags, military emblems, and branches like a triumphal entry into a city. The congregation was composed exclusively of officers and soldiers armed for a dress parade, officers carrying their dress swords, cavalrymen carrying their heavy sabers joined by the rattle and click of their every motion from the spurs on their boots, infantry soldiers dressed in tidy uniforms, carrying shining muskets with glittering bayonets, and then a military signal of drummer bugle led the men to fall in, and the men marched precisely into the church tent, in the tent. The priests, 
vested in rich silk garments embroidered with gold, began the Holy Mass. And my favorite part of Father Corby's description is, At the time of the consecration, if not in the presence of the enemy, cannons boom in various directions, going forth like thunder in the heavens. These military masses were not the norm, though, as the regular Sunday Mass held less brilliant ceremony, and the daily Masses were held early in the morning, allowing the chaplain time to say the office, hear confessions, attend sick calls, and the like. But personally, I do think these sound pretty amazing. At the onset of the war, army chaplains received no pay, but Father Corby's family provided him with a good horse and fine clothes, which led to him often being mistaken for a general, although his attitude was anything but a general. Instead of remaining back in camp or in a position of safety, Father Corby was often found alongside the soldiers he served, encouraging them forward. It's said that no spot was too dangerous for the priest, who earned the nickname of the Fighting Chaplain. It's also said on one occasion, Father Corby personally met President Lincoln during the war to ask for clemency for a popular member of the Irish Brigade, who had been court-martialed and sentenced to death for abandoning his post, getting drunk, and committing a serious crime. Corby described Lincoln as a very tender-hearted man, who said to him, Chaplain, see here, I will pardon him if General Meade will. Meade, an Irish Catholic himself, who had been blocked for promotion on multiple occasions for being Catholic, refused to overturn the court-martial. Meade felt, as many of the other Union generals did, that Lincoln pardoned far too many soldiers. Corby gave communion to the condemned man and stayed with him up to his execution. On July 1st of 1863, Father Corby's regiment, the 88th New York, took position near Cemetery Hill in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, in preparation for what is considered the most decisive battle of the Civil War, which resulted in over 50,000 casualties from both sides combined. The next afternoon, Confederate soldiers charged with a large assault against the Union forces with the Irish Brigade tasked to stop the advance. According to Father Corby, the men of the Irish Brigade had absolutely no chance to practice their religious duties during the past two or three weeks, being constantly on the march. Colonel St. Clair Mulholland described how Corby responded with the men about to engage in battle, which was reported in the Philadelphia Times, which I'll paraphrase here. There is yet a few moments to spare before starting, and the time is occupied in one of the most impressive religious ceremonies I have ever witnessed. The Irish Brigade, whose green flag has been unfurled in every battle in which the Army of the Potomac has been engaged from the first bull run to Appomattox, stood in columns of regiments closed in mass. As the large majority of its members were Catholic, the chaplain of the brigade, Reverend William Corby, CSC, proposed to give general absolution to all the men before going into the fight. While this is customary in the armies of Catholic countries of Europe, it is perhaps the first time it was ever witnessed on this continent. Father Corby stood upon a large rock in front of the brigade, addressing the men. He explained what he was about to do, saying that each one would receive the benefit of absolution by making a sincere act of contrition and firmly resolving to embrace the first opportunity of confessing his sins, urging them to do their duty well and reminding them of the high and sacred nature of their trust as soldiers and the noble object for which they fought. He closed his address. Every man fell on his knees with head bowed down. Then, stretching his right hand towards the brigade, Father Corby pronounced the words of the absolution. 
the scene was more than impressive. It was awe-inspiring. Nearby stood General Hancock, surrounded by a brilliant throng of officers who had gathered to witness the very unusual occurrence. And while there was a profound silence in the ranks of the Second Corps, yet over to the left, out by the peach orchard in the little round top, where Weed and Vincent and Hazlitt were dying, the roar of the battle rose and swelled and re-echoed through the woods. The act seemed to be in harmony with all the surroundings. I do not think there was a man in the brigade who did not offer up a heartfelt prayer. For some, it was their last. They knelt there in their grave clothes. In less than half an hour, many of them numbered with the dead of July 2nd. The absolution that Father Corby pronounced over the brigade was as follows. Dominus noster, Jesus Christus, vos absolvat, et ego actoritate ipsius, vos absolvo ab omni vinculo, excommunicationis interdicti, in quantum possum et vos indignitus indigne, ego absolvo vos a peccatis vestris, in nomini patris et filii et spiritus sancti. Amen. Sorry, but I'm not an ordained priest, so you did not just receive absolution by listening to this Catholic History Trek podcast. But I did want to recite this absolution as it is similar to what you would hear in the confessional if you've received the absolution in Latin. And it's also similar, except for one exception that Father Corby later retold, that general absolution was intended not only for his brigade, but for all, north or south, who were susceptible of it and who were about to appear before their judge. Due to the high casualty rate of these Irish regiments through the war, Irish support for the Union's war effort began to wane, and when the federal government passed the National Conscription Act in March of 1863, which happened only a few months before Gettysburg, which allowed for the wealthier Americans to buy their way out with a $300 exemption, the Irish responded by protesting with draft riots in New York City, which Kevin had referred to earlier. So with diminishing numbers and a lack of support, the Irish Brigade was disbanded by 1864. So now with the Irish Brigade decimated and the Union on its way to victory, I'll let Kevin pick up the pieces of Father Corby's story. One thing that your account reminded me of, Scott, this wasn't in my notes, but it's an anecdote that I came across at some point. You talked about Corby uh, being very active during the battles, and um, there's one story about him. Um, an, an officer in the Irish Brigade had given Corby his purse with his valuables, his money in it, to keep safe during the battle that was uh, about to happen and later on the same officer saw corby in the midst in the heat of the battle and he said what are you doing here and and father corby replied doing my duty and he said well give me my purse back it's safer with me the other thing i wanted to mention is that i feel like uh these episodes are becoming something like a where's waldo book uh for regular listeners it seems as though in every episode scott is going to figure out a way to make a train or a railroad reference, and there was one in this episode. So if you missed that, you're going to have to go back and listen to it again. I'm not guaranteeing it's going to be in every episode, but it's looking that way at this point. So as Scott said, with the disbandment of the Irish Brigade and the end of the Civil War, eventually, of course, Father Corby uh, returned to civilian life, if you will, as a regular Catholic priest. But this experience uh, at Gettysburg had a lasting impact on the men who experienced it and also Father Corby himself. In fact, just a week after the battle, a non-Catholic Union officer approached Father Corby and said, I would like to know more about your religion. He had been present on July 2nd 
And he said, well, I have often witnessed ministers make prayers. I never witnessed one so powerful as the one you made that day. So obviously a profound impact on those who had witnessed it. After the war, Father Corby had an illustrious career. He was named vice president of the College of Notre Dame, and then in 1866, named president of the school. For five years, he was away at Sacred Heart College in Wisconsin, and in 1877, returned to Notre Dame to serve a second term as president of the university. And so he was therefore both the third and the sixth president of the University of Notre Dame. During his tenures, he built many new buildings, including two iconic structures, the Basilica of the Sacred Heart at the heart of campus, and he also rebuilt the main building after an 1879 fire, and this is the building that sports the famous Golden Dome. In 1886, he was made Provincial General of the Congregation of Holy Cross, the order to which he belonged. He did revisit the site of those dramatic Gettysburg events one more time, Father Corby was reunited with the veterans of the Irish Brigade during the 25th anniversary observance of the Battle of Gettysburg in 1888. 50,000 survivors from across the nation gathered at the scene at what had by that time become a national memorial. A monument to the Irish Brigade was dedicated during the gathering on July 2nd, and the bronze Celtic cross standing nearly 20 feet tall was fashioned by an Irish Confederate veteran of Gettysburg and Father Corby blessed it. He wrote, The emotions that filled my breast when I met the surviving officers and men once more on the field that drank in the blood of so many of our dead companions may be more easily imagined than described. I shall never forget that meeting. A few years later, in 1893, Father Corby published a book, Memoirs of Chaplain Life, which recounts his experiences with the Irish Brigade. Father William Corby died December 28, 1897. Father Corby's coffin was draped in the green Irish Brigade flag and was carried to its final resting place by men from his old regiment. That final resting place was Holy Cross Cemetery at the University of Notre Dame. The episode, the absolution, has become part of Civil War lore, especially the lore of the Irish and of Notre Dame more specifically. Father Corby's famous absolution has been memorialized by an 1891 painting by Paul Wood. That's called Absolution Under Fire and appears on the cover of the book that I mentioned earlier. It's located in the Art Museum on the campus of Notre Dame. In 1910, with funds raised by the Catholic Alumni Association, a statue commemorating Father Corby giving absolution to the troops was dedicated at Gettysburg. This bronze statue was sculpted by a fellow Irish Catholic, Samuel Murray. The statue is said to be mounted on the exact boulder which Father Corby stood on when he was delivering the absolution half a century earlier. A copy of that statue was also made for the University of Notre Dame, and it stands there today in front of Corby Hall. This is the one Scott mentioned earlier, Bearcatch Corby. A final instance of the memorialization of this event appeared very briefly in the 1993 film Gettysburg. This is one of my favorite Civil War movies. There's a brief scene as the Union officers are preparing for action on the morning of July 2nd. They come upon a large group of soldiers who are receiving a blessing from a priest whose back is turned to the camera. Well, that's a reference to the absolution by Father Corby. As Scott indicated earlier, Father Corby would have delivered this famous absolution in the historic language of the church, Latin, 
and as usual, we will conclude this episode in Latin with a prayer. Gloria Patri et Filio et Spiritui Sancto. Sicut in principio et nunc et semper, et in saecula saeculorum. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to Catholic History Trek. You can reach us at catholichistorytrek at gmail.com.